0: Well, Brandon's covered us in prayer. Are you ready to enjoy the Word together? Yeah, let's see what God has for us this morning. If you'll take your Bible or your phone or your iPad, whatever you're carrying today, let's go to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1 this morning. And if you you, you got out of the house without your Bible this morning, don't despair. Just raise your hand. We've got copies of God's Word in the back. And Charlie would be glad to make sure that you get one of those. There is a note page in your bulletin. If you wouldn't mind retrieving that, that will be helpful along the way. And, and church family, last week we began a brand new study series in the book of First Peter entitled Exiles. And this title comes right out of the first verse of the book. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles. Now, kind of a strange way for Peter to address a letter to Christians calling them exiles, and I would say, yes, strange, but if you were with us last time, then not strange when you understand the times that Peter was living in and the circumstances into which he sent this particular letter. Sometime in the latter half of 64 A.D., Intense persecution of Christians breaks out in a region known as Asia Minor, and it spreads throughout five regions that Peter actually names in verse 1, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All of these are in modern-day Turkey. Now, there were many Christians in this part of the world at this time, first century, middle of the first century, and there were many churches where, where Jesus was named and he was loved. Churches really not unlike IBC, to be truthful. But almost overnight, the feelings and sentiments of non-Christians whom these believers lived among changed. Their feelings changed. Changed from feelings of, of, of tolerance or, or maybe mild indifference To in-your-face confrontation, intimidation, slanderous accusation, exclusion, persecution, really, in all of its various forms and expressions. And Peter, at the prompting of God's Spirit, writes this letter to these Christians who have become, in effect, spiritual exiles in their culture. Not because of anything that they have done wrong, but because of who they are and what they believe. Now, you might remember this from last time if you were with us. Jesus told his followers, he said, Anybody who follows me, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Exiles. And so Peter writes this letter to help these first century believers stand strong, to endure unjust suffering and and remain faithful to Jesus in a culture that has become hostile, dangerous, and unpredictable towards them. That's why Peter wrote. Though certainly not to the degree or extent that these first century believers are experiencing it, Our culture is slowly but most surely becoming less tolerant of those who have given themselves fully to the God of the Bible and the Jesus of the cross and the empty tomb. Are we agreed on that? Sure. Culture is becoming more hostile. And ironic, actually, when you stop and think about it, given the fact that the word tolerance is such a valued word in our culture today. But ours is a post-Christian culture actively trying to throw off the biblical values that once permeated our our national life, actively seeking to distance itself from the message of a crucified and risen Savior. And so that makes you then, brothers and sisters in Jesus, spiritual exiles as well. Peter's letter is a passionate call for exiles, Christians, all Christians in all times, to live well for Jesus in a world that can be hard and intolerant and even hateful and cruel. Now, because Peter's motivation is to strengthen and encourage and build up spiritual exiles to even greater faith and courage, he does not waste a single moment in attempting to do that. Uh, But he's going to do it this morning in a way that we might not have expected that he would. In verses 3, 4, and 5, which are going to be the new ground for us this morning, he breaks out in an incredible expression of praise to God. He's going to praise God for what every Christian has because they have put their faith and trust in Jesus alone. And in this way, Peter will be teaching these first century exiles and teaching us by way of extension that praise is actually a fantastic way to push through and see past persecution and pain and discouragement and loss and trouble. Praise. As you see it there on your note page, it's every exile's secret weapon. And Peter is going to teach us about that this morning. So we go back up to verse 1, just to get a running start at verses 3, 4, and 5. We read again, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, and what's the word? Exiles. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now we unpacked that last week, and there was a lot there. For us to digest. So we've looked at that. Verse 3. New ground for us. Blessed be. The God and Father. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy. He has caused us. To be born again. To a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the dead. To an inheritance. That is imperishable. Undefiled and unfading. Kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now that is a long sentence, isn't it? (laughs) But man, is it packed with some wonderful truth. So so how does Peter, after his opening introduction, effectively step into this letter about enduring suffering? How How does he get started? Well, he gets started with praise. Blessed be. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can say what? Amen to that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that may not be exactly how we would expect a book on suffering to begin. Praise God. But that's where Peter wants to begin. Inspired by the Spirit of God. And I have to wonder if Peter was not reaching back in this moment into the Old Testament and taking a page out of Job's notebook. Do you remember Job? Do you know the story of Job in the Old Testament? Brandon and our, our youth are, talk, are, are tackling this, this book of Job on Sunday nights here in the fall, which I think is fantastic. I mean, it's, it's got to take some courage to, to take on Job with a bunch of junior and senior high kids. I mean, that's a challenge. But they're up for it, and they've stepped into that, and I think it's marvelous. Do you remember Job? Do you know his story? A godly man, one of the most godly of his generation. Satan approaches God in a very interesting conversation in Job chapters 1 and 2, and and Satan says to God, you know, the only reason that Job loves you is because you lavish blessing on him. You take all the good that you've bestowed on him away, and he will reject you. He will turn away from you. And God, interestingly enough, in this moment says, well, let's see if that's true. You may strip him of all that he has and even take away his health. And so in one day, Job loses all of his earthly wealth, which was very great. All of his children are killed at one time in a terrific storm. And he is struck with a terrible physical affliction. Even his wife comes to him and counsels him to curse God and die so that the suffering can come to an end. So so what is Job's response to that? Well, in in chapter 1, verse 21, here's what Job says. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, what's the next word? Blessed be The name of the Lord. Satan got it wrong, didn't he? Now, Peter's letter on suffering and living for Jesus in a world that doesn't, does not begin with a lament. It doesn't begin with a complaint or even a woe is me kind of a note of sympathy for these exiles who are going through it. Peter begins with blessed Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God be praised. God be adored. God be honored. God be extolled. God be worshiped. All glory, all blessing to Him. Peter calls for praise, church family, because praise sees past-present troubles to something bigger, and in this case, something infinitely better. Blessed be the God and Father Of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then with that. Peter launches into one of the most amazing descriptions. Of the riches of our salvation. That we will find anywhere in our Bibles. These spiritual exiles. Desperately need to be encouraged. Well what better way to do that. Than to remind them. That what they have in Jesus. Though they are in exile. Is far greater than anything that they had. Before Jesus. Now would you be able to say that about your life? That what you have in Jesus is far better than anything that you had before Jesus? Can you say that? Yes of course you can. Praise God Peter says. For the riches of our salvation. Which the Father in, in, in being the sole source of Jesus Christ. Has given to us. And not content to leave that statement unexplained he then looks at these salvation riches from three perspectives as you see it there on your note page he's going to look at our salvation from the past he's going to look at it from the present and also look at it in terms of the future now just to keep it real here this morning the truths that we are about to step into they only apply to genuine lovers and followers of Jesus Christ, genuine Christians. So perhaps it's possible that you are here today and and you're not sure yet where you land with the person of Jesus Christ. And I would say, okay, okay, but you are here. You are here. And I hope that God might take the amazing spiritual realities and the promises that that would become yours through faith in Jesus that are going to be explained to us here in the next few moments, that God would take those and then draw you to himself to trust in Jesus alone. So these promises really did become your promises. May it be so that if you came without knowing who Jesus is in your life as Savior and Lord, you would leave today without any doubt in your heart or mind. Verse 3. "...Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead." Peter says, "...Oh, dear brother or sister in Jesus, suffering at the hands of a culture that does not share your faith, remember, you have been born again to a living hope." He has caused you to be born again. Now that's past tense. He has caused you to be born again. Born again. Someone says, what? What, what, what does that mean, born again? Well, that's exactly what a religious leader named Nicodemus said to Jesus when Jesus spoke of being born again In John's gospel, John chapter 3, do you remember this moment, church? John chapter 3, Nicodemus, a religious leader, meets secretly with with Jesus under the cover of darkness because he doesn't want to be seen by any of his peers. But he genuinely wants to know who Jesus is, and he wants to know what Jesus' message is all about. And Jesus gladly receives him under the cover of darkness. And in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus says, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, no one will ever see God unless they are born again. Now, Nick is understandably confused in this moment. What? We're only born once, Jesus. Can we enter into our mother's womb a second time and be reborn? What are you talking about? And Jesus, of course, was not talking about physical rebirth at all. What was Jesus talking about? He was talking about spiritual birth. Absolutely. The Bible describes our natural condition, the condition that you and I were born in, as, as us being spiritually dead. The Bible says every human being who's ever been born, except for Jesus, was born dead spiritually. Check this out. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, oh, there's that word that Peter's using, God made us alive with Christ even when we were, church, dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Church family, what does dead mean what does dead mean? Say it again. It means dead. That's exactly right. It means without life. It means lifeless. It means flatlined. Right? It means unresponsive. Not just unwilling, but unable to respond to God or anything spiritual. If you're dead, you don't respond because you can't respond. Dead. Dead. To live spiritually, then, we must be born spiritually. We must be born spiritually. And this is what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. And it is what Peter is sharing here with these exiles. And by the way, it is very likely that Peter was in the shadows on the night that Nicodemus came and and had that secret visit. Peter was there, and he heard this conversation, and he heard this description of being born again. If you look again at those verses out of Ephesians. But because of his great love for us. God who is rich in mercy. Made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in sin. Peter says it this way. Same truth. According to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again where does new spiritual life come from church where does it come from according to peter's verse it comes from god himself does it not he has caused us to be born again it's something that god does it is something that only god could do now from this same Second chapter of Ephesians, check out these two verses, verses 8 and 9, for they simply amplify on what has already been said. For it is by grace, mercy, that you have been saved through faith. And this is not coming from yourself. It is the what? It's the gift of God. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Even the faith to believe is a merciful grace gift to us from God. It is all from Him so that all the glory for our salvation goes to Him alone. Are we on the same page? Yeah. Now, there is something that is true of every one of us in this room right now who is a Christian, a a true follower of Jesus Christ. Each of us In our past, experienced the mercy of God being poured out on us. Would you say that's true of you? Yes? Yes. Yes, yes. yes. The mercy of God was poured out on you. Not because of anything that you did. Not, not because you were somehow more spiritually perceptive than everybody else and, and not because you worked really hard to be good and do good things. And God said, I think you deserve mercy. None of that. No, new birth spiritually is not something that we can do any more than we can cause ourselves to be born physically. Have you ever heard of a baby coming out of the womb and shouting, Look what I did! Yes! (laughs) Ever? Ever? No, of course not. But the same is true spiritually for you and me. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Does that not encourage your soul? It's not you, it's Him. So God does this miracle, and by it, we are made spiritually alive. And this new birth miracle affects our whole being. We are new creations. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 5.17, the old has passed away and the new has come. Christian, think about your own story, your own own journey. Why are you today a sold-out follower of Jesus Christ? Why is that true in your life? It's because something happened to you deep inside of you where the real you is. Something happened that wasn't sourced in you. It it has changed the whole trajectory of your life, but it didn't come from you. Peter says the only explanation is that God did that. He poured out his mercy on you and caused you to be born again. Exiles in any age must never forget that glorious truth. And then Peter adds, born again to a what, church? To what? To a living hope. I just wanted to make sure it was there. You got it. It was a little slow, but you got it. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why does he call it a living hope? Why does he do that? It's because our faith and our trust is in what? A living Savior, right? It's a living hope because we have a living Savior. If Jesus were in a tomb somewhere today, would you have a living hope? Of course you wouldn't. And you certainly would not be gathered here at Idlewild Bible Church this morning if there was a tomb that held the body of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen says it this way, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Christian hope is ever-living Because Jesus, the ground of that hope, is ever living. Amen? Yeah. So what do spiritual exiles, Christians living in any time and culture where the uncertainty of the future is real and you might even be persecuted severely for your faith, what do you need? You need hope. You need hope. Our hope is in a living Savior who rose from the dead and conquered sin, death, and the grave. Jesus said it best, I think, out of John chapter 11. Right before he calls Lazarus out of a tomb, raises him back to life. He's been dead for four days. Here's what Jesus says, 1125 of John. I am, say it, church, the resurrection and the life. I am that. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Yes. Yes, you do. The most eternity-defining question anyone could ever be asked, do you believe this? Do you believe Jesus died for your sin, defeated the grave, so that you could have new birth and a living hope? Do you believe? Yes, yes, and yes. Now, that's the riches of our salvation in the past. Peter says, blessed be God for this. And then he begins to turn his thinking to the riches of our salvation in the present. And here he wants to talk about us being heirs of. Of an inheritance. He continues his long run on sentence. Saying verse 3. Born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4. To an inheritance. That is present tense. Imperishable. Undefiled and unfading. Kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power. Are being guarded present tense. Through faith. We've been born again to an inheritance. Now, we're all probably familiar, at least in some way, with the concept of an inheritance. An inheritance is something that comes to us by virtue of a relationship. Normally, it's a family relationship. When a person dies, there is the reading of a will and the wishes of the deceased person are made known and their assets are distributed to those whose names are included in the will. And so if your name's in the will, you have an inheritance. Now, one of the things that we do know about inheritances, earthly inheritances, is that they can be rather slippery, right? They can be slippery. Your name might be in the will, But it can be removed. So be careful what you say at the family Christmas gatherings, right? Some have been disinherited because of something they said while drinking the eggnog, right? Or an inheritance can shrink in value. Grandma spent $100,000 on collectible Cabbage Patch dolls in 1981. She left you the entire collection, it used to be worth something, but not anymore. Your sister got the diamonds; you got the dolls. Thanks, Grandma. Yeah, thank you. Uh, people can steal an inheritance. Uh, unscrupulous lawyers can diminish the value of an inheritance. Massive inheritances can actually be squandered. I mean, have you ever heard of the the, the Vanderbilts? You familiar with that name? Most of us. In some way, the, the family, the Vanderbilt family was once worth $300 billion in today's money. $300 billion, not million, billion. Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, you know he's only worth a piddly $94 billion today. So think about that amount of money. The Vanderbilt fortune dwarfs anything that the world knows. Yet in 1973, just 75 years from the height of the the Vanderbilt wealth, there was a gathering of 120 direct descendants of Cornelius Vanderbilt, and not one of them, not one was even a millionaire. To say nothing about being a billionaire, they weren't even millionaires. Even the greatest material inheritance in history can simply disappear. Now contrast that church family with the indestructible qualities of our inheritance through faith in Jesus Christ. Peter says to exiles who may have recently lost all of their material possessions to persecution. He says to them, brother, sister, your inheritance is imperishable. To perish means to die. Decay and death are part of everything we know. In this world, we can hardly conceive of something that does not ultimately die. But our inheritance, says the Holy Spirit here, is what? It's imperishable. And it's undefiled. Now this speaks of the moral quality of our inheritance. It can't be touched or tainted by sin. There's nothing unseemly or evil or cruel or a pride infected about our inheritance. It is eternally pure and good and beautiful, and it's unfading. Peter says. The flowers fade, the grass withers, human beauty, fame, accomplishment. it all fades, doesn't it? It fades. The stars of today, what happens tomorrow? Well, they get wrinkles. They get wrinkles. And then they use a cane. And then they are no more. And they're quickly forgotten. Everything fades. But our inheritance experiences no fading. Time has no corroding effect upon it. Why? Because, church family, our inheritance is nothing less than God. Himself, And all of the eternal blessings, which are ours as children of his family. Eternal life, heaven, new earth, joy, peace, rewards, beauty, and on and on and on it goes. And most importantly, our inheritance is seeing and savoring Jesus and experience the fullness of being with him forever and ever. 1 Corinthians 2 9 says it like this No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. You can't imagine what your inheritance will be like. That's awesome. That's encouraging. If you flip your note page over, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Come, take possession. Your inheritance is waiting. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 says, In him, Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Colossians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, Paul writes, We are being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Who does the qualifying? God. Not you, not me. God makes it possible. He qualifies us to be in the heavenly will through faith in Jesus. Or how about Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15? Therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, a new agreement between God and the sinner so that those who are called may receive the promised, what? Eternal Inheritance. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And it's guarded by God. Guarded by God, Peter says. Your inheritance, mine, guarded by God. Peter continues continues at the end of verse 4 and then slides into verse 5. Kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith. Our inheritance your inheritance fellow lover of jesus is in heaven right now and it's waiting for you does that encourage you that should encourage you jesus described it this way matthew chapter 6 verse 20 he says your inheritance your inheritance is where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves cannot break in and steal our inheritance is right now, brothers and sisters, in the most secure bank vault in the universe. It can't be touched. Now, let's not miss the subtle shift that Peter makes here. Kept in heaven is our inheritance. The next word, first word in verse 5, who, who. And with that subtle change, Peter is no longer talking about God keeping our inheritance. God is now keeping Us. Don't let that little shift get past you. The inheritance is kept in heaven. We are being kept, present tense, on earth in anticipation of receiving it. By God's power being guarded through faith. Now the word here for guarded, it's an interesting Greek word. It means to garrison. Now, it's a word that in Peter's day was used of the walls of a city that encircled it and protected it from outside attack. It was a city that was garrisoned. Or the word could also be used to refer to making something so secure that there could be no escape. You are garrisoned and you can't escape. And so God's power does both of those things for us spiritually. His power keeps us from caving in and giving up when attacked from the outside, whether by Satan or by a hostile culture. And His power keeps us from quitting when on the inside, fear might threaten to overtake us. We're being guarded. Do you like that thought? I love that thought. As I reflected on this My thoughts turned to the Secret Service that is in charge of guarding the president. Now, we've all seen images like this for a long, long time. Dark-suited men walking near the president, wearing sunglasses, talking into their cuff of their suit coat, right? Talking into the cuff. And and they are looking so ultra-cool and dangerous, I mean, these are bad men. Why are they there? Why are they there? They are there to provide 24-hour protection for the president. They have incredible power at their disposal. Weapons, technology, Air Force One, agents, money, missiles, you name it, they've got it. America will spend whatever it takes to protect the president. But as history has shown, even these these guys, the most elite of the elite, can't guarantee protection of our president. Can't do it. So what does Peter say here? He says, our salvation is garrisoned by the infinite power of the living God. I'll think about that. Your life right now is garrisoned guarded by the power of the living God. It's like each one of us have our own spiritual secret service detachment right now. She's about to speak to Mrs. Gossip. Move in. Or or he's leaving on a business trip with Mr. Skeptic and Miss Temptation all units respond or or he's in church but he's fallen asleep during the sermon tase him (laughs) that would be pretty cool actually (laughs) but God's power is at work always to sustain our faith that's what that's what's going on present tense right now We're exiles by the election of God. Verse 2 said that. We're born again by the mercy of God. Verse 3. And we're kept saved by the power of God. In verse 5. Our faith is being guarded. Always guarded. God keeps the inheritance for us. But brothers and sisters. He keeps us for the inheritance. Does that encourage you? That should encourage all of us. As exiles. So in the past, we were born again. In the present, we have an inheritance. And in the future, our inheritance will one day become our possession. Our salvation will soon be fully revealed. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time fellow christian and an heir is no longer an heir when the awaited inheritance is finally yours You, you you cease to be an heir because you possess the inheritance now think of think of prince charles heir to the throne of england now you want to talk about a guy who's been waiting a long time for his inheritance I mean, he's a perfect example. He's been waiting a long time. Now, presumably the day will come when he will no longer be an heir. He will be the king, right? And the, the titles and the crown jewels and Buckingham Palace and all the other stuff will finally be his. He's already royalty, but the full experience of his royalty, well, that awaits a coronation. Our salvation is like that. We're already saved. We're already children of the living God. We are heirs of, of a heavenly estate. But the full experience of our salvation, well, that's in the future. That's not come yet. And when Peter says in the last time, he's thinking about the future consummation of human history. Upon the return of Jesus and his final and ultimate victory over sin, Satan, and death, when every knee bends and every head bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? That's it. That's when it's fully revealed. Our ultimate inheritance is Jesus himself. Paul, Holy Spirit inspired, writes the Thessalonian church. And here's what he says to them. You turned from to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to what, church? To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Can you say amen and amen? 1 Thessalonians 1.10. You're waiting for this, are you not? Are you not waiting for this? I am waiting for this. Jesus said on the night before he died for us, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will... What, church? I will come again. That's future. I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, am, you also may be. And then just to complement that, Romans chapter 13, verse 11, a beautiful little verse. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Uh (laughs) Amen. Oh, man. Why is that true, church family? Why is that true that salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed? Well, it's true because every day that you and I live on this earth means that we are one day closer to the return of the king. Exiles must never forget that. Every day I'm one day closer to seeing the king. And so maybe tonight when you lay your head on your pillow, think back to this morning and and, and just say Father I am one day closer to being with you praise you for Jesus in my life may the riches of salvation in Jesus keep us anchored as exiles born again to a living hope heirs of an inheritance that can that we can't even begin to imagine and and ours to possess Forever, when we see our Savior face-to-face. Salvation, past, present, and future. May we never cease to say, church, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can we say it aloud together? Can we end the moment here? By saying that aloud together, let's do it. Let's blow the roof off this place. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Church family, let's stand. And the team will come up and we're going to worship the Lord together with a closing song that Brandon has picked for us that I think is perfect to follow up. Let's pray as the team comes. And Father, we just thank you for these, these salvation Riches that belong to us. Oh, how we thank you. Blessed be you, Father God, for the gift of Jesus Christ. You've encouraged us greatly. We are spiritual exiles in our day. We're grateful that our persecution is not intense in this time, and we do not feel that pressure like those in the first century would have felt it. But the days are are drawing closer to when that may well be our story. So we thank you for preparing us in advance, equipping us to be able to handle such times. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Most of all for Jesus. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Let's sing.